Happy anniversary. We're celebrating four years of broadcast today. I'm TL, and I'll be your host for the next hour. Each week at Mass, we say those words, I believe. But our belief has implications on the way we live our life for the rest of the week. We explore those implications together right here on Outside the Walls. Today is a banner day. We are celebrating four years of this program. Uh, we started back on November 17th of 2014 in uh, on one station. This all started in Tulsa, Oklahoma on um, St. Michael Catholic Radio. It's the, the brainchild of, of uh, David Niles and Adam Minahan. Uh, they now are the hosts of the Catholic Man Show, but they, at the time, they were just two guys who had their own jobs, who uh, had a wild hair uh, at at the uh, at the encouragement of someone else to uh, to apply for a radio permit uh, from the FCC, and with 24 hours and a lot of gutso and a lot of grace, they were able to pull it off, and they won that little uh, the little lottery. They got the uh, the station, and then they had a certain amount of time to get it on the air, and they, full, with full trust in the provision of God, they went forward, and they got the funding, and now it's it's thriving um, there in the in the Tulsa, Oklahoma area. So for for those of you who are listening on St. Michael Catholic Radio, it's a happy anniversary to you too, uh, because we started. I think this show started airing maybe the second week that the station was on the air. And I look back to those humble beginnings, both of the radio station and of of this show, which really was, and we've talked about this on the episode that I had uh, Adam and David on the show, it, it really was uh, them twisting my arm saying, hey, we need local content, um, and you like to talk, that birthed this show. They went behind my back and talked to my wife and talked to the bishop, and they both thought it was a great idea. And so here I am, and I, I honestly, I cannot imagine today what my life would be like if not for this show. So I have just immense gratitude uh, to them for their audacity, both in uh, pursuing the radio station and in twisting my arm and putting this show on the air. Um, and I look at, at the ways that God moves us as a people, as me as an individual, as uh, us as a uh, a broader Catholic community. I look at the ways that God urges us on into his will, and I'm amazed. You know, we look back over uh, in hindsight, and we can see the hand of God guiding us in any number of different ways. But at the time, it doesn't feel like it. At the time, maybe we feel like we're adrift, and yet in the midst of that, God is guiding us. At times we might feel like we're abandoned, and yet in the midst of that, God is walking right beside us. And I have, over these last four years, gained an immense amount of comfort and consolation from the saints. And that's what we're going to talk about today. We're still in the month of November. We're still uh, taking this month to remember those who have gone before us. And so I wanted to talk a little bit about that today. I saw this article on um, on the Church Life Journal from the University of Notre Dame about the communion of the saints, and it's a topic that always interests me and that I can't quite fully comprehend or grasp. And so that's that's the kind of show that's my favorite show because I know that if I have a question about it, someone else does as well. 
And so we can have a conversation. We're going to talk with the author of that article, who's also an author of a book on the subject. And we're going to explore what it means to be in the communion of the saints. And so as I have gained such consolation from the saints, it's come from this. Um, Life has taken twists and turns that four years ago I never would have expected. Uh, My family's moved across the country a couple of times. We have... um, We've trusted solely in the provision of God uh, as we have a large family. And there were times where we um, were working in a volunteer capacity, really, uh, without, uh, without gainful employment, but trying to entrepreneur our way through things and just trusting that God was going to take care of us. And coming to that realization um, that God loves his saints, and uh, I had this picture of what that looked like growing up as a Protestant. I had a picture of what God's provision looked like as a Protestant. And it, it, I knew that it wasn't that God gives you whatever you want. I knew it wasn't prosperity gospel. And yet there was some aspect of God's not going to let me fall financially or God's not going to let us uh, falter. Or, and yet God loves his saints. And you look at the lives of his saints and you see, um, you see this one failed at business, and that one had failing health, and this one over here, um, you know, they lost their their whole family, and yet in the midst of their turmoil, they still followed and loved and served God, and so that was a real challenge for me, in the midst of those difficulties in my life, is to say, you know what, even though I feel abandoned. And even though I might feel adrift and even though I might feel alone, I can look to the lives of the saints and know that they knew something of God and they have uh, received something of God that should bring me consolation. I shouldn't be scared of, of destitution because they weren't. They weren't scared of destitution. They, some of them embraced it and said, in the midst of that, they found God. In the midst of the suffering, they saw the face of God. In the midst of poverty, they saw the face of God. And so I could look and say, you know what? Everything can fall apart. And still, God is good. And God is worthy of my praise. And so in in the saints, I found the strength to go through hardship and found the strength to go through difficulty, knowing full well that even if we failed in business, even if we failed in health, even if we lost our lives— we could still count on the ultimate and enduring and eternal mercy and provision of God. If you're in the middle of difficulty, if you're in the middle of worry, let it go and realize that the saints were where you are now. Turn to them, ask for their intercession, and know that when you get down the road and you look back, you're going to see exactly where God was in your difficulty. He's standing right with you. If you want to stand with us, be a part of our community, go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and support the show. Help us go another four years. The support of our Patreon community keeps us going week after week. For as little as $5 a month, you get access to a lot of extra content, including extra segments with our guest each and every week. Go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click that Patreon link, and join that community. We'll be right back right after this. You're listening to Outside the Walls.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on daily life. I'm your host, TL. We're talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo uh, from the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. I just had Veterans Day this last week, and we're we're thinking about those who have gone ahead of us in, in our secular mentality, but let's turn our attention now as a people of faith to say, what kind of connection do we have with those who have gone before? Uh, the church talks about, I believe in the communion of saints. And we say that every week, um, but I'm not sure that we fully understand what it means. And maybe that's just projection because I don't fully understand what it means. So to help us figure that out, uh, Dr. DeLorenzo has a, a book that he's written on the topic called Work of Love, A Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints. I came across it on the Church Life Journal, which is a wonderful resource. They, uh, they put up fantastic articles all the time from the McGrath Institute from Church Life. You can get to that by going to churchlife.nd.edu. Dr. DeLorenzo, thanks for joining us today. It is my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. So... Here we are. We are faced with uh, this creedal statement. I believe in the communion of saints. Um, what 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 are we believing in? What does that mean? That's a great question. <laughs> that is a great question. In fact, that was my primary academic question as a doctoral student. In fact, what do we believe when we profess this? Uh, because when we profess it, I believe in the communion of saints. We're professing that there is a communion. And in fact, that communion itself is stronger than any obstacle to communion. But of course, the greatest obstacle to communion that we come across, that we know that we at least touch the border of, is the interruption of death. Mm -hmm. And each of us in our own lives, so this isn't just a theological or an academic interest, this is a, a pastoral, a personal uh, concern and realization. Each of us in our own lives has been separated from someone we love. And most of us, if not all of us, have been separated from someone we love because of death. So when we profess belief in the communion of saints, part of what we're professing belief in is the truth of Christ's promises that in him we are bound together in a way that's stronger than anything that might separate us. I wrote this book, Work of Love, A Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints, to try to work out theologically, for the sake of our own practice of the Christian faith, what we mean by that. Mm -hmm. So here's here's a question. Uh, Great. Actually, twofold. One, we talk about communion of the saints, and, and we're using it in a very practical sense of that word. What does communion mean? It means to come together in union. Uh, but for us, that word carries almost a jargonistic flair as well. Mm. It, there's a, a holy word. We use that word surrounding church. Communion is that thing that we do when we go up and we receive the bread and wine. What do you mean communion of saints? There's this this idea that somehow the word is just generically holy. And so that idea that the relationship that underpins the word, I think we sometimes lose in light of, oh, well, it's just a church word that we use. Yeah. You know, when we say communion of saints, communio sanctorum, in the tradition of the church, this first of all means the communion and the holy things, as you're sort of pointing to here. And it's that's much more prominent in uh, the Eastern church, the emphasis on the communion and the holy things. But the communion of persons actually 
follows from the communion in the holy things. That when we say communion of saints in the church, we do mean that what we share, the body of Christ being recipients of the gift of that body, but also becoming participants in that body, is the basis of our communion with one another. Now, we have all other forms, as I think you're pointing to, right? Like we have all other forms of togetherness, which we might even call communion, our communities uh, that we live in, the, the institutions that we participate in. Um, they're ways in which we share life with one another. And it isn't the case, I take it, that it's either communion in the church or it's communion in these other things. But rather that the communion in the church is the fullest vision, the deepest reality of all the other forms of communion that we're striving for, that we practice, that we participate in. Because the communion that'll last is our communion in Christ. And I think, so to go back to where we started, this interruption of death that breaks communion. If we take death really seriously, as we ought to, we need to kind of cleanse ourselves and purge ourselves of any kind of lingering idea that we will have any power, any agency in our death. In fact, this is, I think, the humiliation of death. All the power that we think we exercise, all the agency that we think we have is stripped from us. We're a lifeless body. We no longer move ourselves. But in fact, that's precisely the time at which we see the full power of the promises of Christ, that he who was risen by his father gives that power to us, his power. He raises us. And so all of our separations from one another, all of our failed attempts at communion and community are actually anchored and redeemed in him who makes communion not only possible, but permanent. And that's what we profess belief in, in the belief in the communion of saints. We're talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo. I hear you talking about those that we particularly are separated from by death. Right. And I, I think because of the way we talk about saints in the church, we're mm -hmm. thinking of, you know, we still have the Roman canon in as we consecrate the Eucharist. And so we have all of these saints who lived all the way back at the beginning. Mm -hmm. uh, and so we think in some way, uh, and perhaps this is also a, a failure of our modern times to understand the communion of saints. We think of the saints as being far removed from us in time, in, in, uh, in culture, and maybe everything else. Uh, and so we have a hard time, I think, and maybe this is also because we are, we know, <laughs> we know our relatives too well, and we know that they're probably <laughs> in purgatory. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but we, the, the idea that that person that we knew and that we loved, that we could persist in a communion with them, which of course is what the communion of saints sprung out of. That was right. the reality in the first century. Right. Um, I, I think that that's something that's lost to us today. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's very much to the point. Um, we better, I think we better not tell the saints themselves, the ones that we feel like are separated from us, that that's how we feel because they'd be the last ones to confess that themselves. Here's what I mean. Actually, I think it's a question of who am, okay, so this will sound very philosophical and existential, but like, who am I? Like, where do I, I myself begin and end? And just from a very local, close to home level, if I try to identify myself as separate from my wife, first of all, that would be imprudent and unwise, but it's also <laughs> untrue, right? I, like at, at a very deep level, 
my understanding of myself is tied up with my relationship with her, with who she is. Likewise with my children, likewise with my parents, likewise with my brother and his, and my uh, siblings-in-law, etc. Like I, my life, who I am is tied up in them. Now, if we take somebody who's very obviously a saint, not me, but let's say Teresa of Calcutta, who's very obviously a saint has been proclaimed canonized as a saint. Where did Teresa of Calcutta begin and end? Well, from the view from the end, it wasn't just her, Agnes Bajaksu, all grown up. It was Teresa of Calcutta in and right with the lives of those who she claimed as the poorest of the poor, who she hastened to in her works of mercy, who she came to see through the Eucharistic vision that she, she adored in adoration on a daily basis. She would be the last one to want to be identified as separate from them, the ones that she loved. And so when we canonize Teresa of Calcutta, we canonize not just this individual isolated person. I think what we're actually doing is proclaiming that the incarnation of Christ, the incarnation of the word, the life of Christ has reached right here at this particular place in history, this person and everyone that she touched. That's who Teresa of Calcutta is. And every saint is a bud of communion. Mm -hmm. So for each of us in our veneration of our loved ones, I think what we're doing is taking up that task and that duty of recognizing that I am not myself by myself, first of all. That my grandmother, Dorothy Lafrano Di Lorenzo, was not herself by herself. She, would, she wouldn't want to be defined that way. And so to, re to recall her memory, to venerate her memory, to ask for her prayers and to pray for her is actually a form of truth-telling. It's a way of saying that in Christ, this is what it means to be a human being, to be connected to and with the lives of others. Um, in modern times, in our modern world, we've lost the practice of venerating the memory of our, loss, of our loved ones, our lost loved ones. We've lost the practice of being concerned for them on the one hand, the prayers for those in purgatory, but on the other hand of recognizing if they truly are saints, if they truly are blessed, we have lost the memory or the practice of recognizing their concern for us. And I think we come to an understanding of it, whether it's intellectual or, other, or otherwise, not from just reading books, but actually from the practice of venerating their memory, of venerating them. The practice will lead us into the understanding of the fullness of Christian life. And we don't have a whole lot of time here in this segment, but I, I okay. do want to get into what that practice looks like uh, in the next segment. So Great. here in these last couple of minutes, um, what I'm curious about is I think that we, we don't get a, a grasp what it means to be in relationship with someone who we can ask for their prayers and we might be able to see the result of their prayers. But the idea of a relationship with a person who can't communicate back and of course, mm. we're, we're not in the communion of saints communicating with the dead. There's not a dialogue that's going on with those who have gone before. And, mm -hmm. yet, and yet somehow there is a very real relationship with those who have gone before. Uh, can you break out that idea? <laughs> just, you know, just, yeah. just in a couple of minutes. Just yeah, real just real quick. quick. So, yeah, when I, you know, when I was doing my research on that particular book, Work of Love, and 
people would ask me what I was doing and I'd say, well, I'm really dealing with the issues of death and communication and the community of saints. They would only hear death and communication. And I would get all these, I would get all these stories of like near death experiences or like borderline seances. And I'm like, that's not, that's not really what I'm talking about. So yeah, that question of like, how do we communicate? That is to say, like exercise communion with those who are, who have died, who no longer um, are available for us in communication in the ways that we communicate otherwise. I think this is where the church's liturgy is not just our teacher, but also a consolation for us. If we pay attention, let's say, to the prayers that we actually pray on these days that come at the beginning of November, the Solemnity of All Saints and the Memorial of All Souls, pay attention to the actual prayers and what we're praying, what we're actually doing together in the body of a church is we are expressing our concern for others that they may become filled with concern for us, yeah. that those they may be brought into heaven and pray for us. We're actually practicing a form of communication. We're talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo. He's the director of undergraduate studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame, talking about the communion of the saints. He's got a whole book on the topic, Work of Love, a Theological Reconstruction of the Communion of Saints. I highly recommend it to you. Join us as we celebrate four years of being on the air. Come over to social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Let's have a little party. While you're there, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and maybe give me a present. I'll give you extra segments. We'll be right back right after this. Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on daily life. I'm your host, T.L. Putnam. We're talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo. Uh, he is the Director of Undergraduate Studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. And man, that is a long title. <laughs> yeah, just name me president of something, and that's a lot easier. It's president. Yeah. You've got all, there's all of these, um, all of these prepositional phrases buried in that title. That's academia. Yeah. <laughs> so we're talking today about the communion of the saints. You've got this wonderful book available on Notre Dame press work of love, a theological reconstruction of the communion of saints. And this is something that I have been intensely curious about. I came into the church in 2011 and this was one of those hangups as I was a Protestant trying to figure it out. And my, my cousin who I've mentioned several times on this show, his answer very wonderfully framed apologetics was that in the first century, you would have these people who, um, who would ask their friend to pray for them, just like I would go and ask my friend to pray for me about some pressing need. And then the next week they may be martyred. They may be gone. And then you still have the relationship with them. You still go and you ask them now who are more alive than ever before sitting before the throne of God, you ask them to go and pray for you. Now um, you mentioned in your, in your book, and I think it comes from uh, a, an essay by Rahner that what was present back then, the practice or practice um, mm -hmm. is absent somehow today. And what was absent then in the doctrine has now been firmly established and the doctrine <laughs> is present. And so we've yeah. kind of flip-flopped with them, this idea of communion of saints. Right. Uh, and I wonder if maybe the doctrine being established makes it a little bit harder to practice it because we have this doctrine of purgatory. Uh, and so 
you know, with the martyrs, it's easy because we know that the martyrs in that moment have gone through their purgation. But for those of us who uh, are not under the threat of martyrdom, and uh, I know the person who just died, and I, I hope, I hope they're in purgatory. And I have this founded, <laughs> I have this founded hope in that, that Christ has, uh, has worked wonderful things in them, but it feels almost like presumption to go mm-hmm. uh, and can still ca- have that connection with that loved one who just passed on. And, and I don't want to get into that stage of pres- presumption. Um, yeah. And I want to make sure that I pray for their soul and I don't leave them abandoned because I've presumed they're already in heaven. Right. And so how do I uh, practice the communion of saints in a very local way, as opposed yeah. to just going back to the saints that are canonized uh, far, far away and removed? Is that it? Just that? That's just we'll that. Get, just that. Just that. Okay, no problem. Um, yeah, no, I think you're really onto something by saying that um, maybe it's the, the enshrinement of the doctrine that has actually I- ironically kind of released us from the obligation to pray for the dead. Um, and I, I totally hear what you're saying in terms of going to a funeral, and it is everything's a little bit too clean, everything's a little bit too uh, euphoric, strangely. You know, that now this person, we just let them go and we say they're definitely in a better place. Aren't we supposed to be concerned for them still? Yeah. Well, I think, you know, in the end, I don't mean to give like an academic answer to this, but I actually think this is a practical answer too. What do we imagine that heaven is? Like, what is heaven? And I think especially in, you know, much of our modern thinking, we imagine heaven as something like an apartment complex where each of us has our own private happiness, where what we would consider to make us happy, to give us pleasure now is just augmented and exaggerated. So we're all having these simultaneous individual experiences of Mm -hmm. God. That's not the Christian notion of heaven. It's a mansion, not not an apartment complex. We live together. It is the younger son of the prodigal father and the older son of the prodigal father who both live in the household. That's the image of heaven. So if we take that to our own relationships, what is the penitential life now and what is the purgatorial life to come? In some very significant way, it's being healed of all of our individualizing tendencies, all of the ways in which I barricade myself from you. And how do we cut through that? We cut through that by me exercising uh, a devotion and dedication to your good, what's good for you, as actually good for me. I need to treat your good, your sorrow, as my own good, my own sorrow. And so in the prayers for those who have died, I think it's a way of actually doing that when perhaps we have, it seems like the least to gain in return. Mm -hmm. I pray for my friend, Brian, with whom I went to high school, who died in his early twenties. I remember him at liturgies who wasn't Catholic. I write his name in the book of the dead every November because that's not just for him in a strange way. It's for me. I have to be dislocated from concern with my own good, my own agenda, what I'm doing today, what would naturally occur to me is important today. 
No, what's important for me today is also his well-being. And so I think that the practice of remembering the dead and venerating the dead is a practical way for us to come out of ourselves and to take the concern of others as our own concern. And this is something that, while it's culturally foreign to us, is not culturally foreign to the world. It's kind of uh, built into the the DNA that we would remember and honor our dead. You mm-hmm. look at uh, you look at the Asian cultures. You look at um, you look at the the Hispanic culture with the right. with the ofrendas and with the you know just go watch Coco. It's all in there, right? <laughs> I was just thinking, yeah. The, I mean, the sort of cultural appeal of the movie Coco. Part of it, it was just visually beautiful. The movie. But also I wonder if like part of the appeal is like how peculiar this vision, how interesting, right? Like how interesting and peculiar this vision is that we're not actually separated Mm -hmm. in the deepest way by death. But there is in that movie literally a bridge that goes across. Yeah, Catherine of Siena calls Christ the bridge, the one who goes across, who connects us not only to the father, but even to each other. So it's really built into us at our deepest levels before, um, before our Western aversion took over to be connected to those who have gone before. You know, um, we, we talk about praying for the holy souls in purgatory, and, I, and I've heard people say, pray for those especially for whom they, ha- they have no one to pray for them, right? Mm-hmm. And we haven't in our mind who that is, and yet recently I've come to think, well, all of my friends who are Protestant who have died— Mm-hmm. it's not part of their practice. They have no one to pray for them. In fact, there are some who are Catholic who, like you said, at their funeral, they were instantly canonized. They're in a better place. If their family assumes that they are already enjoying the beatific vision, already in the presence of God in heaven, then they have no one to pray for them. And yeah. so all of a sudden, those who have no one to pray for them are very close to home. Yeah, that's a really great insight. I mean, one way we could think about this, maybe in a really piercing way, is when we do that at a funeral, when we just release somebody to this vague notion of a better place, are we really doing that for them or are we doing it for ourselves? Because what happens when we walk out that door, we've at least given ourselves permission to let them go. And in fact, to allow ourselves to get back to something like life is normal. But the communion um, of the saints says that we never let them go. No, life has changed. When right. someone dies that we love, that we're responsible for, that we've been tied up with, um, maybe that we haven't loved well, but we ought mm-hmm. to have, life should be different. This is one of the great things I learned from my grandfather, Louis de Lorenzo, who was not a clearly religious man. Mm-hmm. His wife, Dorothy, my grandmother, was a clearly clearly religious person, she died first. And one of the things that I learned from my grandfather is her death really mattered to him. And it never stopped mattering. Mm -hmm. He never, he didn't say a lot, but he definitely didn't say anything like she's in a better place. He didn't let her go very easily. He just allowed himself to be affected for the remaining years of his life by her loss. Now, is there something constructive that you can do with that loss? Yes, that's what the church says. There is something constructive to do. You hand it over that pain and that loss in the liturgy. You offer prayers. You do stuff. But one of the things that I loved about my grandfather is he didn't do what most of us would be tempted to do, which is to try to make life 
in some ways totally normal and kind of okay again after that loss. Mm -hmm. He didn't. There was a discipline in that. And I think it's a beautiful discipline that's begging for a creative, constructive response based on it. But we jump right to the creative, constructive response without the discipline of being disturbed in the first place. Luis Lorenzo let himself be disturbed. And we would look at that and say, oh, man, he needs to go and process and go to counseling and get over this loss. And, yeah. and yet, it's okay for a couple of weeks, for even a year maybe, but yeah. And, and what you're saying is that we are, as Scripture says, members of one another. We are all connected, and that that connectedness, that communion of saints, uh, we have an obligation to remain in it just as they are remaining in us. They are praying for us. The saints yeah. are connected to us, and they see that connection more clearly than we ever could. Yeah. Um, and that... Death does not end our responsibility. We can't be like uh, like Cain and say, "Oh, well, am I my my brother's my keeper?" Brother's keeper? Yeah. yeah, we are. We are responsible for one another. That's why we pray for the church suffering and the church a triumphant praise for us. And that will also teach us how to live right now with one another, because these individualizing tendencies that I talked about. We probably come up against them most clearly when the separation point is death, but we uh, sort of activate these individualizing tendencies in our daily life right now in the ways we don't exercise concern for one another, the way in which we project appearances, the way in which, you know, in a social media platform, perhaps, I'm going to sound like an old person now, but like in a social media platform, we don't allow ourselves to really be vulnerable. And we're also not willing to take the time to really be patient with somebody. We're training ourselves to be very quick, to be very dismissive, to be actually very isolated and separate. But what happens in digital space is really just a reproduction of what we're doing in our sort of embodied physical spaces too. I'm going to sound like a really old person and say, great, make me sound young by comparison. Go for it. Social media in and of itself is not communion in, in most iterations. It is, uh, it is a, a a facade that we put up to pretend that we're in communion, uh, Mm -hmm. but real communion is incarnational that we are face to face and, and truly engaged. Now you can use social media in a relationship that is existing, uh, But the idea that everyone that we're, that if I could just be vulnerable and overshare on social media, I would, I would arrive. I think that that may be um, overstating it. Yeah. No, there's something, there's, there's something that's irreplaceable in being in the same time in the same place. I've actually have to, having to share space together. Mm-hmm. And there's something that cannot be replicated about the human face. Even FaceTime is a substitute it stands in place of actual real face-to-face interaction. Mm -hmm. And I think the fullness of the vision of the beatific vision is actually a vision of being face-to-face with our living God who has come towards us in Jesus Christ and with one another. This is something I love very much about Dante's comedy, uh, the divine comedy, is that at the end of that journey, heaven is populated with faces and names. They see each other clearly. We've been talking today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo, Director of Undergraduate Studies at the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame. Go to churchlife.nd.edu to find his article and many more. Get an extra 10 minutes of content by going to outsidethewalls.com and clicking that Patreon link. We'll be right back right after this.
Welcome back to Outside the Walls, where we explore the implications of our belief on our daily life. I'm your host, T.L. We had a great conversation today with Dr. Leonard DeLorenzo about the communion of the saints. This is a topic that's always interested me. It was one of the first questions I asked my cousin as I was first looking into Catholicism. And it's one that uh, I still am I'm working at grasping, but I've not yet grasped. Uh, I, I spend a lot of time uh, learning about the saints, uh, letting my kids learn about the saints. I spend a lot of time trying to understand um, who they were and their lives are, become inspirations to me so that then I can try to live a more holy life. But I'm still trying to get a handle on what it means to be in communion with them. Uh, I, I don't know if you're in the same boat. If you have a, a specific story of how you interact with the saints or what it means to you to be in a communion of saints, why don't you come over and talk to me on social media, facebook.com slash step outside the walls. On Twitter, the handle's at outside the walls. Uh, let's be in communion with one another about this topic. Again, there is an extra segment for those who support the show through Patreon. We've got about 11 extra minutes of conversation with Dr. DeLorenzo. Uh, go to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and for as little as $5 a month, you can help ensure that we have another four years of this show on the air. And, uh, and I give you a present. It's our anniversary, my anniversary, and I give you the present. Extra segments not only from today, but from our guests going back over a year as a thank you gift for those who support the show. Normally, we pull our reading from Scripture uh, out of the, the recent Mass readings or the upcoming Mass readings. And uh, there's every once in a while an occasion where those readings don't match up as well as something else. Today is one of those days. And so we're going to pull our scripture today from the book of Hebrews, a little bit out of the end of chapter 11, a little bit out of the beginning of chapter 12. The writer of Hebrews has just now talked about the heroes of faith going all the way back uh, to the early covenants and bringing it to the present day. And he says, what more shall I say? I have not time to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who by faith conquered kingdoms, did what was righteous, obtained the promises. They closed the mouth of lions, put out raging fires, escaped the devouring sword. Out of weakness, they were made powerful, became strong in battle, and turned back foreign invaders. Women received back their dead through resurrection. Some were tortured and would not accept deliverance in order to obtain a better resurrection. Others endured mockery, scourging, and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, sawn in two, put to death at a sword's point. They went about in skins of sheep or goats, needy, afflicted, tormented. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered about in deserts and on mountains, in caves and crevices in the earth. Yet all these, though approved because of their faith, did not receive what had been promised. God had foreseen something better for us, so that without us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings to us, and persevere in running the race that lies before us, while keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, the leader and perfecter of our faith. For the sake of the joy that lay before him, he endured the cross, despising its shame, and has taken his seat 
at the right hand of the throne of God. That reading comes from the book of Hebrews, the end of the 11th chapter and the beginning of the 12th. And while he's talking mainly about those in the Old Testament who followed God with sincere hearts, who walked in holiness and did not receive the promise, uh, I think what happens in our response is the same, even as we are looking to the saints, those who did receive the promise, which we know because the church has declared them saints, which means that they are in the presence of God enjoying the beatific vision. So our response to these witnesses of faith is the same. Since we are surrounded by this great cloud of witnesses, let's get holy. Let's become saints ourselves. Rid ourselves of every burden and sin that clings and persevere in running the race, keeping our eyes fixed on Christ and following after him who looked at the joy of eternity. He saw the, for the sake of the joy that lay before him. He endured the cross, despising its shame. We are carrying crosses. We have those things in our life that, that we feel shameful or that we feel uh, overwhelmed by or that we feel is going to kill us. And we look at that and we look to eternity. We look at what the saints have received in the form of the promise and we say, that's what I'm after. That's what I'm after more than, than wealth. That's what I'm after more than, uh, than fame. That's what I'm after more than even a comfortable life. I'm after the eternal, unrelenting presence of God. And so we endure our crosses. Like Christ, we despise the shame of our crosses because we know that that which we hope for is worth it. That which we hope for, the very presence of God, the unrelenting presence of God, is worth it. And speaking of that unrelenting presence of God, our reading from church history comes from a discourse by St. Andrew of Crete. Let us say to Christ, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, the King of Israel. Let us hold before him like palm branches those final words inscribed above the cross. Let us show him honor, not with olive branches, but with the splendor of merciful deeds to one another. Let us spread the thoughts and desires of our hearts under his feet like garments, so that entering us with the whole of his being, he may draw the whole of our being into himself and place the whole of his in us. Let us say to Zion in the words of the prophet, have courage, daughter of Zion. Do not be afraid. Behold, your king comes to you, humble and mounted on a colt, the foal of the beast of burden. He is coming who is everywhere, present, and pervades all things. He is coming to achieve in you his work of universal salvation. He is coming who came to call to repentance not the righteous, but sinners, coming to recall those who who have strayed into sin. Do not be afraid then. God is in the midst of you, and you shall not be shaken. Receive him with open, outstretched hands, for it was on his own hands that he sketched you. Receive him who laid your foundations on the palms of his hands. Receive him, for he took upon himself all that belongs to us except sin to consume what is ours in what is his. Be glad, city of Zion, our mother, and fear not, 
celebrate your feasts, glorify him for his mercy, who has come to us in you. Rejoice exceedingly, daughter of Jerusalem, sing and leap for joy. Be enlightened, be enlightened. We cry to you as holy Isaiah trumpeted, for the light has come to you, and the glory of the Lord has risen over you. What kind of light is this? It is that which enlightens every man coming into the world. It is the everlasting light, the timeless light revealed in time, the light manifested in the flesh, although hidden by nature, the light that shone round the shepherds and guided the magi. It is the light that was in the world from the beginning, through which the world was made, yet the world did not know it. It is that light which came to its own, and its own people did not receive it. And what is this glory of the Lord? Clearly, it is the cross on which Christ was glorified. He, the radiance of the Father's glory, even as he said when he faced his passion, now is the Son of Man glorified. And God is glorified in him and will glorify him at once. The glory of which he speaks here is his lifting up on the cross. For Christ's glory is his cross and his exaltation upon it, as he plainly says, When I have been lifted up, I will draw all men to myself. That reading comes from a discourse by St. Andrew of Crete. And what importance this is for us. To look at Christ, to see him crucified, to see him taking on all of human nature, and to lay his life down at the feet of the Father for our salvation. So let's not waste that. Let's look at what Christ offered to us through his passion on the cross. Let's look at what Christ offered us by his incarnation into the world. We're coming up very soon on the feast of Christ the King. And Christ is glorified, as it says here in this reading, in the cross. And so we should really not expect anything less. We should realize that when we go through hardship, as we mentioned earlier, this is us following in the footsteps of Christ, sharing in some sense in his glory. This is what the saints knew. This is as we look at their lives and we see what they gave up in material wealth for the sake of following Christ, like St. Francis and St. Clair. We look at them like St. Elizabeth of Hungary, whose feast is today, who gave up everything for the sake of God. It's because the things that we see here are temporal, but the love of God is eternal. That's all the time we have for today. Thanks for listening to the show, and thanks for being a part of these four years as we celebrate our anniversary today. Go over to OutsideTheWalls.com, click the Patreon link, and get all the extra segments. Today's extra segment is actually available to everyone. If you like what you hear, join the numbers and help us continue for another four years. Until next week, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.